This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Today, is the coronavirus going to stop? Be real. Restart. Be Real is presented by California College of the Arts MFA in Writing Program. Getting an MFA at their art school setting in San Francisco means you can paint and write, design and write, and make a film and write. You can also just write. Look for their faculty member Leslie Carroll Roberts' critically acclaimed Here is Where I Walk, Episodes from a Life in the Forest, out now from University of Nevada Press, and Adam Nemetz, We Can Save Us All, from Unnamed Press. For more information, power on your computer and visit cca.edu slash writing MFA. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. Welcome, one and all, to your movie reviewing, reappraising, genre hopping podcast. This is Be Real. I am Chance Solon Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. My friend, we haven't talked in a couple weeks. Um, there hasn't been anything going on, so I don't really know why we would have. It's been pretty boring here in Lake Wobegon. Uh, <laughs> nothing has happened in a the world. Charmed existence, I'm sure. We are free to move about the country and internationally uh, unencumbered by any existential threats. That's right. How you been doing? Um, I'm doing fair. I would say it's like only day four of being in my apartment and not anywhere else. So I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm all right. I have a, I'm looking at a desk that has coffee, beer and a giant thing of water on it. So all set on liquids Nice. Um, well, you work from home already, so like I do. you're a freelancer. Like Freelancers have been dealing with the coronavirus since they graduated college. <laughs> yeah, other than um, you know the movie industry being in a bizarre, uh, one of a kind state of flux, my life is not that much different. So, are movie theaters closed in Portland when we record y- this? Yes, they are. Yeah, um, here too. I think they're closed mostly everywhere by recommendation of the state. Are they not? I don't know. Tough to say about some of these states. Are there, are there pirate theaters out there that are just like not abiding? They're like, we're going to show the hunt as planned and people will right. come. Yeah, it's like if you go to the movie theater, they give you a coupon in Oklahoma or something to then go to the bar where everybody drinks free. <laughs> you know what I heard? I was listening to The Big Picture, one of the best movie podcasts out there. So everything tanked this past weekend, of course, because nobody went to see anything. But what made not what opened at nine point five million dollars is the Christian music movie I still believe, which I dare say tells you a little something about who is still seeing movies and perhaps where. I was also reading an article that said 
movies in Hollywood have not tanked this hard over a weekend since 1995 when the movie Outbreak came out, which is so ironic. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, so we're gonna we're here to talk about Kelly Reichert today, the the wonderful American filmmaker whose movie First Cow is a victim maybe of this state of flux. But uh, we're gonna go across her whole career. But I want to talk a little bit just about what we've been watching. You uh, you hopped in the the strange exposure therapy ward of watching Contagion and Outbreak, right? I watched Contagion and Outbreak. That's true. I didn't watch like. 12 monkeys or 28 days later or anything mine were still in like the realm of uplifting sure and did did you find them uplifting um well they both end i guess with the resolution to the thing like society doesn't come to an end um contagion i think is weirdly cathartic because it shows all the processes in place to help curb this thing but i guess like the takeaway at the end is that like a lot of fucking people die. Right. I've only been watching movies where sicknesses are the hero. So Spielberg's War of the Worlds over and over again. Incredible. Big right? sick. <laughs> yeah, I've only seen the title of that movie. I have to assume. <laughs> okay, before we go fully into Kelly Reichert's career... We want to say, as always, that we're really happy to be on the Playlist Podcast Network. Please find that feed wherever you get your shows, whether it be Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, almost anywhere. Leave us a rating and a kind remark, if you would, and check out our sibling shows like Indie Beat, The Discourse, and The Fourth Wall. And now, let's dive into the illustrious career of Kelly Reichert. She has this new movie called First Cow, which has been out in the month of March in New York and L.A., just for like two weeks though, but I couldn't see it. Super briefly, right. It kind of like correlated just with people realizing it was not a good idea to go to movie theaters. But all these critics... Yeah, direct correlation between interest in coronavirus and interest <laughs> in First Cow. A real shame. A24 has announced they will put the movie back in theaters later in the year. That's great. Um, but yeah, it's weird because I mean, all the critics had seen it. It was the one of the keystones of this festival uh the portland international film festival here which got called off halfway through um but we figured we had done all the work we'd watched all these movies so we're gonna basically take a holistic look at the career of uh a very good very interesting american filmmaker in in kelly reichert and maybe encourage you to play some catch-up for when you can see first cow and all the movies we're talking about today are free if you have prime so as is our way we're gonna zone in tight on Three, Wendy and Lucy, Meek's Cutoff, and Night Moves, and we'll talk. I'll talk a little bit about the others and kind of fill in the gaps. But uh, those are that's going to be our main trio. What did you know of Kelly Reichert, and what did you see before we did this? I had seen Wendy and Lucy when it first came out at the Mary Ritma Ross Media Arts Center, classic two thousand eight college campus movie to see. Certainly, um, you've yeah. talked about it on the podcast before. I knew you had seen that one. Um, it made an impact on you, I seem to remember. I remember liking it if thinking it were a little, you know, uh, boring. But it's a great performance. It's like a very, when I think of Michelle Williams, like I often think of when her performance in this movie. Sure, sure. Um, I talked to Kelly Reichert earlier in the month about First Cow. And you say it with the kind of trepidation that feels accurate to the way you've mentioned it to me so far via text message email and phone 
I tend to what get happened? very well. I tend to get very into my like interviews, as you know. It's like what does that the, mean? You like want to lose your shirt? What? Like you get six questions in and you're just like furious, your sweat's dripping from your face. Tell me, Gus Van Sant. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just like build them up a lot. I watched every single one of her movies and had like all these big ideas. And then, uh, you know, there were some outstanding circumstances such as a PR rep messing up the time change and my time getting shrunk to 15 minutes and it being right before her lunch. But I suppose the, the the funniest anecdote is, so her new movie, First Cow, is set in 1820, Oregon. All these movies we're going to talk about today are set in my, my new home state of Oregon. And it's about the, like, the very, the nascent stages of the territory and of capitalism and these two friends who end up stealing milk from the first cow in the proto-territory to start this like proto donut business. Um, but I asked her then, because there's a, there's a point in the conversation in the movie where these two friends have a conversation about whether Oregon feels old or new. Um, and it's sort of like, I'm trying to, I'm writing about this in my feature, which is also held, but like, it's the perpetual organ debate. It's like, oh, what an interesting, gleaming place full of promise. We should start something here um, that parenthetically, ultimately, probably ruins it. And then the other person is like, no, this feels less sort of old and ancient and timeless and should possibly be, be preserved. And I asked, I opened with this. I was like, what do you think? Have you felt this push-pull in your time like making movies here? And she hit me with like a Seinfeldian, really? And I was just like, what? <laughs> what? Um, she's like, no. She said, I, I do not buy your premise. Um, you have to plan for traffic in Portland now. And some of the forests we filmed Old Joy in aren't even there anymore. Which... Because well, she was accusing you of like not being aware of the... I think of being naive. Like it was so obvious that she was offended by it. I think of being overly romantic. And as I've replayed this moment several thousand times in my mind over the past three weeks, it's that she makes super, super, super unsentimental movies. I think she cares deeply for her characters. I think they have a lot of dignity. But these are not sentimental films. That's why I bring it up. Yeah, do you have an overarching sort of theory of the movies we're going to talk about today? I think they're... They all end in sort of an abrupt way for me that really made me question like if they were or weren't sentimental and I don't know. There's something about watching Oteur filmmaking that you like start to notice similar things, especially in the context in which we're doing it, this like three movie format. And so I think what I found so novel about Wendy and Lucy and then like not experiencing any of her other work until today or this week, um, it does feel of a conversation she is trying to make about a specific like hundred mile square place. So her story is that so she's made seven features. She's a, a Miami, Florida native and her first movie called River of Grass came out in 94. I've seen this movie it's about exactly the quality of a movie you'd expect from someone who's like really talented and is going to soon start making much better movies. Um, but the remarkable thing about that movie's uh, sense of place is just the concrete. 
she evokes this sense of modern life in Dade County of this sort of like this Bonnie and Clyde story from actors you probably don't know. Um, one of them is Larry Fessenden, who pops up again in Wendy and Lucy. But it's like, yeah, it's like Bonnie and Clyde if they had no access to people or life and were just like trapped under overpasses. Um, so that's kind of the story of that one. And then she has that's a really long gap, um, which she's talked openly about how kind of the, and we talked about this too. I think we did it on the, when we, when we had occasion to do that um, Gus Van Sant, Kevin Smith episode about how like the 90s film boom indie film boom in retrospect is like very white and very male and i think she's she's talked a lot about getting left out by that interesting yeah Um, it it is a uh an auspicious amount of time that went by did you find that the first film speaks to her style the way the others kind of speak to each other definitely um I think one of the things that interests me the most about her is the fact that she edits all of her own movies, which is not something that's really done very much in the modern era. Unless you're um, Steven Soderbergh and you give somebody else the credit for it. Right. <laughs> you make up a person. Um, I mean, she's just a master of like the match cut of in a pretty unpretentious film theory way, making you think about like, here's the last thing I showed you. Now think about how it looks with the next thing I'm going to show you and the, and the timeliness and the rhythm of the cut. Um, and yeah, it's, she also loves movies about two people falling off the map together. So definitely in keeping with what she does. Then to make this, I'll try to shorten this up here. She works in the art department of uh, Todd Haynes movie called poison, um, which eventually draws her out to Oregon couple short films but she from 2006 on she makes five out of six movies set in Oregon and six out of six set in the Northwest and these are all I think my overarching theory now is that all these movies are are how the West was won and where it got us movies whether literally like westerns really or a modern take on that yeah Oh, I that see was, what you're doing. I was and I did get I was even, goofing I at the naivete of your premise. Fucking tremble down my spine when you said it. <laughs> uh, Poor chance. You mean I well, know. buddy. Oh yeah. It was probably just a long day for it's this. One of person. the main things about me. That you mean well? Yeah. Yeah, you got a real Jimmy Stewart about you. Okay. So we're not really gonna talk about old joy that much. 2006 it's her first outing with uh john raymond upon whose short stories many of these movies are based um and it's this story of two friends in portland uh taking a lost weekend at the bagby hot springs which i have done my friend micah has like weirdly forced me to go out to those hot springs which is kind of exactly what happens in the movie um but that one is also immediately about like portland is changing like our friendship is changing, life is moving forward. She's really interested in these like eternal kind of forces of change and how you absolutely like cannot stop them. Um, so that movie's not a western, but it is about how like the West cannot stay, in a way. Which brings us to Wendy and Lucy, two thousand eight. Great dog. What's her name? Uh, Lucy. Your sweetheart, Lucy. Where are you going? Going to Alaska. Woohoo! King salmon. You going to work? You can't sleep here, ma'am. You can't sleep out here. It's not allowed. Okay. (laughs) 
$50. You can pay your fine now, or you can come back for a trial with the judge. I don't, I don't, I don't live here. I'm, I'm just passing through. If you get stopped in another state, you're just going to end up right back here. Hundred bucks. Be fifty for labor. Tow it over, I guess. That adds another fifty. That. It's your sister. She broke down in order. What does she want us to do about it? No address? No phone either? No, not right now. You can't get an address without an address. You can't get a job without a job. So Wendy and Lucy, 2008, is Michelle Williams as the titular Wendy traving to Ketchikan, Alaska from Muncie, Indiana in search of alleged work, though it seems like it's more of a a vision quest of sorts. Like, she doesn't have a job lined up. She's just going there because she heard there is work, mm-hmm. which is sort of interesting. Um, and she's with her dog, the titular Lucy. Yeah. And the car breaks down, what, outside Bend? You mean, like, where she's stuck the whole time? Yeah. Where the North whole movie Portland. takes place. It's North Portland. Okay. Yeah, she gets she pulls over to sleep one night at a Walgreens and her car won't start the next morning. So she's gotta figure out how to get the car. She's gotta eat. She's got this dog who's gotta eat too. And all she has is the five hundred dollars that she's mapped out to the penny that will get her to where she needs to go. And so any unexpected financial burden is not not in her plan. Uh It's a real, I think that's a great way to set it up because it is a very, very slight movie, Um, but it's basically a puzzle of resources, which actually is not that different from what Meek's cutoff end up being. It's like a what can you carry movie. I drop you onto a street in North Portland with $500, a broken down 88 Accord, a hungry dog, two shirts, and a parking lot that you cannot park in. What do you do? Yeah. Yeah. But it's really, I mean, the movie has that premise, but it's not, it's not really aware that it's a premise movie like that. It's not terribly interested in showing her, like, use all of her things, like, um, you know, a Slumdog Millionaire style or something to succeed in the end. Yes. Let it be said that in terms of movies about poverty and degradation, this is not Slumdog Millionaire. No, I think there's, it's definitely at the other end of the spectrum. Yeah. Jai Ho, Michelle Williams does not. So this movie, because it really only is Michelle Williams, kind of hangs in Michelle Williams. Uh, Absolutely. And because the script doesn't necessarily always give her the most sensical way, like, through these challenges, the she has to be very sympathetic in order for you not to, like, scream at the screen, right? What's on your mind? What what felt nonsensical? I just you? think the use of so the whole premise, and we can get into it a little bit. Well, the whole like inciting incident that really sets things off course. I guess the inciting incident is the car. The first real narrative conflict she deals with is she needs to get food for the dog. So at first she tries to like pick up some cans and plastic bottles and stuff to turn in for a deposit, and she gives up on that pretty quickly. And then decides to steal some dog food and some other things, really, from the grocery store and gets caught. Mm-hmm. But at that point, to me, like, the script feels like it has that whole of, like, she has $500. Like, 
getting caught shoplifting is so much worse than just paying the like, or just like offer the $5 that you ended up stealing right then when you get caught, like you have the money on you. So in that way, it's a movie more about like obsessive compulsive, like money stuff more than it is about like, oh, this person is in abject poverty and needs to like, you need to sympathize with that. I don't think this movie really is about like, how the system abuses poor people. I think this movie is just very close onto this specific character. Who's just like bad with money and has no safety net to catch her. But I don't know that it posits that she's like a well thought out person who would succeed if she had the like thousand dollars that she needs to get out of this situation. Sure. No, I don't think so at all. I think she, I think she is like a, both like an archetypical and kind of new like drifter figure. You can feel it in the performance. Like she steeled herself and like maybe uh, is setting out for something bigger before the movie started. And who knows what's on her mind as she departs on that train car as the movie ends. I think the thing that needs to be pointed out a lot about a lot of these movies is they're based on short stories and the movies all retain that feel. None of them feel novelistic at all. Um, But yeah. But doesn't that end up, well, we don't have to turn so quickly, but because they feel so short story like, don't you feel like in some places where there could be more nuance, they are a bit flimsy? I don't think it makes sense to like apply your personal survival logic to like a character that you're ultimately meant to study. Like, it's, I think she doesn't want to. I think she thinks that she can get away with taking that dog food. So the $500 can be for the next thing. Right. But the logic in most of these choices she's making ends up costing her more money because she simply doesn't do the thing. Like that's the whole, like the whole irony of the, even the title, Wendy and Lucy, it's like a, a movie about a woman and her dog, but it's not really about a woman and her dog. It's about a woman who loses her dog. Mm hmm. But like that is sort of the whole, I mean, that's ultimately the growth of the movie is her realizing that she can't possibly take care of a dog. But I guess I don't understand the movie's logic then to like have the villain of the movie be society thinking that everything terrible about us as embodied by this do-gooder grocery store clerk who catches her who says like people who can't afford a dog shouldn't have a dog. But mm-hmm. then like, what's the movie logic then if she has this whole journey planned down to the dime, why doesn't she have a full bag of dog food in the trunk? Like, why is she already running out? And that to me is like, it pokes at something I think like more sinister even about like how the movie views characters like this, that like we want to see them as romantic you know, people jumping on trains and like finding the American dream. But I almost think maybe Kelly Reichert's pissed that people would even believe that to be true enough to put their faith in it. That could well be true. I think that is a, is a good read. I don't think that, I think we're meant to root for Wendy a lot, but I, it's like, when you like, for instance, when she calls her, her brother-in-law and her sister, like they want nothing to do with her. Like something, Something is she off did about something this woman. absolutely yeah, right. She's running. She's definitely yep. running, and you wonder what it's from. And I think it. By the end, it doesn't matter. Of course, she does have to grow, but also she like hurt this living thing. 
not just in the leaving of her, but like for months when she lived in a car with this dog. Why don't we get a little more basic for a second? So Michelle Williams here. One of the interesting things about Reichert's career is four movies, this, I mean, A.O. Scott once called them neo-neorealist, this sparse, this small, this gritty. She really works with a lot of movie stars. Like there is something about these scripts and something about what she asks actors to do and maybe what she asks them not to do that really appeals to some pretty serious actors. Michelle Williams, she ends up working with three different times. We're going to talk Eisenberg later on. We've got some got some Dano and some Bruce Greenwood coming up. But Michelle Williams in this movie, it's I a think... It's an A-list cast, front to yeah, back. There <laughs> Bruce is, Greenwood. Yeah. Will Patton. Okay. You know what I'm saying, though. Like, no, I, I hear you. A lot of if people you've like, seen before. Yeah, if if I told you it's a movie about a woman who's houseless and lost in North Portland, you'd be like, "Does it star an actor?" And it's like, yeah, yeah it stars Michelle Williams. She um, makes these indie movies look really, really good because she knows how to make them well by spending like money on people you've seen before. Who like, if you take a shot in them, they'll give you something crazy. Yeah. And then shooting on location. Yeah. There is something kind of wonderfully recessed about William's performance Ooh. here. At the same time as like, you know, you can't help but be like under that kind of, you know, mousy. Boy, does she really not look like a starlet with that short black dyed hair. According to IMDb trivia, when she was shooting, she looked so grungy that local people just like treated her like a normal person. Yeah, but I, I mean, she makes the movie. If you're watching someone who's not interesting to watch, this is a, you know, a totally forgettable social examination. Can I nitpick? Sure. My big nitpick with this one and Lucy, not the dog, the woman with whom I share an apartment in the quarantine zone, um, mm-hmm. said, and I agreed... The way Michelle Williams calls the dog sounds like someone who's never owned a dog. <laughs> um, it just doesn't thing? sound like she said it 10,000 times before. It all sounded sort of new. So I wonder, I don't know. That to me, would, it broke my suspension of disbelief. I don't know. What makes we think, how long do we think she's had Lucy? Lucy, by the way, is Kelly Reichert's dog. Oh, the the dog actor. Mm-hmm. Um, that's so funny. It might be new. It might be a new thing. But I hear what you're saying. She doesn't have a lot of command over her. She doesn't have a lot of command, but like has enough that you think she's had her at least like a couple of years. Right. I don't the know. ways in which she does and doesn't have command, I think, is some of the most... Int- I think the acting that she does with Will Patton when they're kind of haggling over how to fix the car is some really interesting, evocative work because, I mean, God knows figuring out how to talk to mechanics is one of the like least favorite parts of my life because you're just like, I want to have authority here, but also I don't know anything. I'm completely at your mercy, but don't you think that? <laughs> and, right. You know, that's just exaggerated tenfold um, with Patton giving like a folksy, weird performance. Um, it is a very weird performance. 
it, but it's kind of like it unlocks him in an interesting way. Like I always think about him as Coach Yostrom, remember the Titans, but that's Patton with like all the edges sa- sanded off. Here he's like, oh, what a nice, interesting man who then takes like a weird sing-song phone call from his bookie in the middle of yeah. the interaction. <laughs> yeah, this Will Patton is definitely not sanded at all. It leaves uh, splinters wherever he goes. He comes into work when he feels like it, much to her chagrin. I think that these, when this movie has scenes where there's like a clear direct thing that one of the characters is trying to do, even if it's just a character alone in the frame, I think this movie like has that good writing underneath it. I just think her tendencies, I'm talking about Reichert, are these, like, is the reliance on these like naturey or like look at the contrast of something industrial like train tracks set against these like rolling pine trees mm-hmm. an over reliance on stuff like that that like takes me out of when she gets momentum building because like there's another cut of this movie that feels more like urgent and you see maybe like more like I wanted to see maybe more of the just how long it takes to walk four miles you know to get to the pound and back like i wanted to see a bit more of that and like you know a little less maybe with like the inner workings it almost felt like the assistant watching her like make copies of the dog poster or like eat a donut while she's waiting for will Patton to get back to her like show me some real scenes here where characters are going after something and either something in the environment, whether it be a human or an animal or just something uh, like I love that shot where she like can't get to her car because it's like five feet away. But like this chain link fence like won't bend enough to let her in. Like yeah. that to me is a great scene. But I don't know. There's ones that reach for something I think a bit more pretentious that didn't land for me. And I think make this movie ultimately what I'm going to rate it. Okay. What's that? I think it's a good bad. Okay. I think it's an interesting performance. I think I'll forgive anything that is an hour and 20 minutes long. Uh, And I think it does something cool on like a very limited budget, you know, poking at not only how wealth is changing hands and how drifters get caught in certain, certain parts of the world, specifically the Pacific Northwest. Um, but yeah, it's also unsentimental too, in the way, you know, you almost feel like it's in conversation um, with uh, what's the one with uh, Ben Foster and the leave no trace, leave no trace. Yeah. It feels kind of like that where here's a person beyond saving, just like dealing with one of their problems during their lives. Sure, sure. Um, Yeah, I don't actually disagree with much of any of that, although I'm not sure what the difference between seeing her walking to the pound and seeing her, like, struggle to, like, revisit the guy and get the phone over and over again is. I think it's all pretty, like, a now what do you do? I love her relationship with the guy who's standing in the parking lot, who, parenthetically, I... He seems like such an authority figure and also her only lifeline. And the thing I love about Kelly Reichert movies is the degree to which people need lifelines is one of her, the tagline for her, for her new movie or not a tagline. Sorry. It's the, um, it's the prescript, a quote at the beginning from William Blake, which is, uh, the bird, a nest, the spider, a web man friendship. And she loves to make these movies about 
duos and the potential for people being in duos and needing that human connection because like why else are we alive otherwise like there if without that there are walgreens parking lots miami overpasses and high desert um and i think that that holds true here and i just love the specificity too of as as not a good dog owner as she's portrayed to be isn't there something just so affecting about when she's at the pound and she's like she's a 39 pound dog and you love your dog on some level if you are not rounding up or down the weight, right? I think that's a great detail that tells you something about her. Also, I texted you this. That is the pound where we adopted our dog 10 years later. So What? I, I, I te- is that a fake what? I did text you this. Oh, I didn't read it. It's a surprise. My surprise is genuine. Oh, my God. I'm going to just read back all our texts and see how you react on the show. I'm um, getting about 66% of them. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's where we adopted July. So wow, you could say that between that and some of the organness of these movies, I might be a little biased toward. But I think this movie's a good good. I just want to know more. I think that's my overarching thesis about all of these movies. It's just like, you know, I want that. It doesn't have to be like the, you know, the prologue to Midsummer, but. She didn't have to leave Muncie because she gassed her parents or anything. Sure, But something that gives me more sense of, like, why the door closed on her so much so that she had to, like, you know, close her checking account and, like, hit the road to to Alaska. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that... I'm, I, I can agree with that. I think if there is something, like, experimental about these movies, it's that they all pick up in the middle of something... And you're left to think about the beginnings and the ends, which leads us to Meek's cutoff. Yeah, a movie without a beginning or an end. That's right. But it does have a beginning. It opens on a river. Oregon Trail 4 style, they are fording the river now. They are. They've, they haven't quite cocked the wagon, but they're thinking about it. If the water were a foot higher. Which, of course, rings out in tragic irony because they will not have water i mean here's zoe kazan carrying a cage with a canary in it across a river trying not to get the canary wet uh not knowing that they're going to be out of water for weeks at a time there's this really hilarious mark Marin interview with zoe kazan where he describes his impression of meek's cutoff as yeah i saw that movie Follow land downhill. We need water. That much I know. That's what you think, that we're lost? I'd say that seems about the right word for it. We're not lost. We're just finding our way. I don't blame him for not knowing. I blame him for saying he did. We made our decision. This is only a bad dream soon. It's going to be a story to tell. He knows where the water is. I've seen him strip the flesh clean off a man while he's still breathing. You people got no idea what you are dealing with here. 2010, it's a group of seven adults, three pairs of, or three couples, and then Stephen Meek, played by 
A-list star Bruce Greenwood, uh, upon whom who the cutoff is named after. Well, don't don't forget Jimmy too, the son. I'm talking only adults. I think. I oh, okay. That. The kids don't you register did? on the visual spectrum for me. Got it. Got it. Got it. American box office, adults. That's right. Those are the things that the only chance will only acknowledge. And yeah, they're traveling through the high desert of Central Oregon, looking for that good Columbia River Valley, looking for that Willamette Valley, and boy, does it seem rather distant. And they're running out of water. They each have a Conestoga wagon. I think that's the right kind of wagon. Um, Conestoga? Yeah, that's right. In their being lost, they encounter a Native American, played by Ron Rondeau, um, who becomes a fascinating Rorschach test for the group of, can he help? Is he the ultimate threat? Brings all kinds of biases and ghost stories of a sort out of Stephen Meek. And uh, that's another tale of what can you carry when you are trying to haul your your wardrobe and your desk across Oregon. Um, yeah. It's also a movie about like when hope is extinguished <laughs> sure like when you think sort that of. it's an infinite amount of hills to the west and there's never going to be another they're never going to find the columbia river it's mm-hmm. also like the story you tell yourself to keep going sure yeah i mean this is a i think that's actually the best part of it it's the story you tell yourself because it's i the thing i think is amazing about this movie is it is manifest destiny in the micro all of these movies are microcosms for something, and this one is a little more on the nose of a How the West Was Won story. For sure. And the movie's got a really good cast, even though you can't really see most of them and don't really know that they are who they are for the first 45 minutes, um, including Michelle Williams from Wendy and Lucy fame, and of course, Will Patton's in the mix. Hell yeah. Uh, like you husband. said, Bruce, as her husband, yeah. And then Bruce Greenwood is this like, charismatic leader who's a buffalo bill type yeah and then you know his titular cutoff um Mm. real life married couple paul dano and zoe kazan of course playing a married couple in this as well and then shirley henderson moaning myrtle from the harry potter franchise that's right uh and then neil huff who i didn't recognize my big critique of this movie my nitpick is that the shots with the sun up are gorgeous and beautiful and really evocative of the natural worlds. But I would say a third of this movie, you at least on my particular television could not make out what was going on because it's shot at night with natural lighting. And that's not bright enough to capture it on 16 millimeter or whatever this is. Okay. I won't fight with you about this other than to say, I did not have that problem. I could tell who everyone was and it's they're mostly just people lit by fire. I got it. So this movie exercises a technique that I find sort of brilliant and infuriating and is maybe something I've like never experienced in a movie before. So I think it's rather obvious that it's trying to show you how suffocating and bewildering the patriarchy is on a journey like this, right? From the perspective of the women. And so you have all of these scenes of Greenwood and Patton and Dano uh, gathering up in the distance to discuss the plans. And Kelly Reichert, 
makes the audience sit there in the perspective of the women for a couple minutes at a time and you cannot hear like what is being said. You're getting like right. every other word. And on the one hand, I mean, I'll tip of the cap to our rating system that it is inherently good, bad technique, but also I've never experienced anything like that before as a man where a movie is like, no, you have to, on a sensorial level, understand how frustrating this was. And it was incredibly frustrating. That's a really good point. Well, because the movie boils down to, and we can spoil it a little bit towards the end, but the movie boils down to what will it take for the men to realize that they are not the only ones with ideas on this journey yeah. about what will save them and what is necessary. Um, and unfortunately, the answer is shitty. Tragedy. Yeah, the um, answer is tragedy. <laughs> it's a movie about how the balance of power kind of subtly shifts within this group as the they basically take the native man who is who is never named as a character captive. He doesn't speak a word of English the entire time. I think the things they imprint on him are kind of fascinating. There's the moment where uh, you know he's making some paintings and, and chanting a bit on this next to this rock, and Zoe Kazan is sure that he is, you know, calling out and leaving signals for the rest of his tribe to come and slaughter them. And Michelle Williams is like, no, he's praying. And movie logic tells you, you're right, Michelle, you're the hero. He is praying. Clearly, you are the not racist one. But take a step back. You have no goddamn idea. This is just a movie about what white people with no goddamn idea are imprinting onto this land. Yes, it's a, it's a movie about how different naivete is... Uh, express themselves or manifest in survival situations. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, if you have this guy who may be the best resource for you since you're fucking lost and you don't know where water is, or he could be the worst thing to happen to you if on the other side of that hill there's just like an army of people like him hell-bent on killing you, right. which just seems to be the two the two positions prevalent in the camp. That being said... Don't you think there's something inherently spoilery, though, about this movie and knowing that it's made by Kelly Reichert that there's literally no chance that there's like an army of bloodthirsty Native Americans on the other <laughs> side of the hill? Yes, for sure. Like, you know because that this movie is going to that? end abruptly, probably without any bloodshed of any kind. And because her favorite thing to do is show like the money shot of the movie through a like a muffled sound. <laughs> well, the money shot of the movie, there's a real threat of violence. It really feels I didn't wasn't sure that Michelle Williams wouldn't kill Bruce Greenwood when he's going to kill the, the Indian. That's yeah. Which is the name of the character, you should say. Yes. Spoilers for River of Grass. uh her first movie, uh, the woman kills a man quite dramatically. So there is some, there is some of that. But yeah, I know what you're saying. That's funny. It's like this movie doesn't have the, the budget for a John Ford, slaughter. right? Like if you go into a Quentin Tarantino movie, you know there's going to be a scene of like gore and violence at some point. Like that's just what you're signing up for. And it's almost like with this one, you go in knowing that will not happen, right? So even if they do eventually run into some sort of army out there, uh, this was never going to be the movie that showed that. Sure. That's fair. Um, Can I make one more thinky kind of point that I think makes this movie very special to me? 
So the, I think the most common refrain between characters trying to make decisions in this movie is, do we have a choice? Or what choice do we have? They must say it six times. You know what I'm... Do you agree with that? Yeah. That is interesting. I think this is what makes it an incredible Manifest Destiny movie. I come from the plains. I come from German and Norwegian farmers who, if you ever held their feet to the fire about like, hey, you guys think you're uh, tacit in the genocide of entire races of people in the founding of this country? They would say... No, not really. We don't get it. We're poor farmers. We came here. We settled. We did what we could. It was really hard for us. And I think this movie is like shows midstream how Manifest Destiny works because you do something impossible that by all rights should kill you. And by the time you're in the middle of it, you look back and think, what choice do I have? What choice did we have? And by the time you're in the middle of it, of course you have no choice. The deed is done. And that's what I think is brilliant about the ending where even Stephen Meek, even the Western, almost caricaturized hero is says, we're all just playing our parts now. This was written long before we got here. I think it's a great revisionist Western. I... I can get there with you too, but I almost think that that's the final cop out of the patriarchy is the argument that this was all destined to happen. You know, that great men are destined to be like in the lead of these things and that they, whatever their ironic end may be, it was fate that brought them there and not their own like stupidity. I'm okay with the fact that we have disagreements. I think this movie is pretty brilliant. I think it is my favorite of all of her movies. That's interesting. I liked this one a fair bit more than Wendy and Lucy. Uh, I still think it's pretty quintessential good bad, though. I get that. I won't fight. I really uh, liked the scene where the Conestoga wagon just fucking eats it down that hill, though. Oh my god. <laughs> um. Oh, I forgot to do it. There's a funny anecdote I heard Kelly Reichard interviewed recently. And there was something very telling about that she couldn't remember Bruce Greenwood's name. She called him Bruce, Bruce, and then she called him Greenwald, which I think is just a very kind of funny, <laughs> telling uh, instance of like where the priorities were in this movie. Of like, oh yeah, who is that like super handsome guy who I basically that we totally like, obscured with a beard. <laughs> who we thought the movie was about him, but clearly it wasn't if you watched it. (laughs) Um, And she even talked a little bit about um, some of the actors on the movie. And I really, I have, if not, I think Paul Dano got what was going on. If somebody was misunderstanding the way the movie was being shot, it was probably Bruce Greenwood. But she was, people were like, are you, it feels like we're having a scene, but it feels like you don't have the camera where the camera would, would show me being like, buffalo bill cody what's going on (laughs) that uh, occurred in the making of the movie he does stick out like a a sore thumb that bruce greenwood it's it's good that they cut around what i can imagine is like so much b-roll of him like just telling stories about men versus bears right (laughs) you see the revenant that was based on me that's what he thought he was signing up for we think okay so we're going into 2013's Night Moves. Working on the night Working moves. on those night moves. That's great. How many uh, times did you sing that under your breath while you were watching? Oh, so many times. 
every time Jesse Eisenberg was in motion. Working on the night <laughs> Trying to shake those late capitalist blues. That's right. Um, Bob Seger, what an American treasure. I feel like Bob Seger could have played Stephen Meek. Absolutely. That would have been a cool, like, David Bowie showing up. <laughs> and he could have, he absolutely could have dropped in song titles. He's like, Who is, is it Bob Seger? <laughs> For the next hundred miles, we'll be running against the wind. <laughs> right, and he'll only speak in his own song titles. <laughs> you could make a shocking amount of dialogue. Should we try? Um, careful on this hill, because it's like a rock. There it is. Um, 2013, mm-hmm. three radical environmentalists look to execute the protest of their lives. The explosion of a hydroelectric dam starring Jesse Eisenberg, Dakota Fanning, and Peter Sarsgaard, who seemingly like hasn't aged since Garden State. He shaves his head now, which is rather jarring, but yeah, he, he is just a beautiful man. How, in these times of watching this Kelly Reichert movie and having the virus on our brains, I have to ask... It's on my brain? If you remember... Oh, yeah, you're done for. If you remember the SNL sketch where he hawks the Peter Sarsgaard Sarsgaard. (laughs) I don't remember that. (laughs) One of the best, like, 11.52 p.m. sketches ever where they're like... He's hosting uh, SARS. It's like in the John news. Ham's John Ham. It's like the toilet paper roll of ham. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I'm Peter Sarsgaard, inviting you to try the Peter Sarsgaard Sarsgaard. <laughs> like, holy <laughs> shit! So yeah, I brought that up when this movie came on too. Um, so this movie is interesting because I think it like legitimately finds her doing her version of a thriller, right? For sure, I would definitely call this movie a thriller. Way different, even in like the hues, uh, aesthetically and genre wise, than any of these other movies. 2048, the oceans are going to be empty. How deep is this anyway? 200 feet. God knows that dam wants to come down. We all should know what we're dealing with oh, here. Can you please shut up? How are you guys doing today? I thought you said no one would be here. When we split up, we shouldn't talk. Yeah, no contact. No contact. I think what I like about this, not to spoil it too early, what I really liked about this movie was the fact that it literally has a ticking clock in it at one point. Yeah. You know, and I think anything Kelly Riker can do to throw those kind of devices at her movies to add that sort of quiet urgency to things, mm-hmm. I think really propels what are fascinating scenes that if there is a higher level subtext, it, it they feel more intense, even if they're talking about nothing. So Jesse Eisenberg, I mean, all three of these people play these environmental well so let me ask you this living in portland like i'm sure these people who are constantly in protest about the treatment of the natural world are you know a sizable percentage of the population or at least Um, a visible percentage of the population 
sure yeah I mean, acts yeah there are climate rallies and such all the time but these people are off the map so they're in like sort of southern Oregon. He is the kind of anonymous hired help on this. Who's he? Jesse? Sorry, yes. Jesse Eisenberg, the Josh character on this. Yeah, he's living in this sort of kibbutz. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or a yurt. Yeah. Well, yurt's just like one of those structures, isn't it? It's like a fancy tent. Yeah. And they're like working at a CSA. They like sell their stuff in like big Tupperware. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's an interest, yeah. It's an interesting kind of uh, profile of like how these people might get by before they try to pull off their plan, or like the the ways in which they um, kind of sink into a more acceptable version of activism while still like being radical on the edges of that. You you get the sense that there's like a larger mass to this movement, and these people are right. like on the outer edge of it, which Reichert sets up really well with this um, this film screening early in the movie. I think an interesting moment in this movie early on is to ground them on a political spectrum. Reichert literally plays like an anti or an anti um, big corporate interest uh, pro climate activism propaganda film and has most of the people on screen react critically and in sort of a pragmatic like what's the point of this like we all know this is true like what do you hope to accomplish with this right why are you showing me a student film of inconvenient truth the year is 2013 we need to blow up a dam these movies have always have all made me very skeptical of like what's what the seedy underbelly is when you're like oh well in normal times when you were like hey i'm walking to the coffee shop and i'd be like is there a woman next to you who can't start her car and is probably going to have to give up her dog because of it? But I mean, okay, but that shit is that shit is true. The fact that Wendy and Lucy presages both the opioid crisis and the larger like West Coast homelessness, people living out of their cars crisis is very like harrowing. Ten years later. I mean, I don't want to put these movies into a context of like these are parables to live by. You know, I think there's a temptation to do that. I think that would be wrong to do, to do with this movie. Right, exactly. But I think as jarring, I mean, all these movies are jarring. They have like jarring imagery of things you don't really like want to see yeah. in a way that gives it kind of a realism. In this one, I think because it's a little bit more outrageous that they're just like making fucking bomb powder like in their backyard, like just seeing the process that they like go through of like in this backyard there's a cement mixer that's making bomb stuff and in this backyard the cement mixer is making soil to like grow these fucking cabbages that we're going to sell at the csa like those kinds of juxtapositions are really interesting to me and i can't believe it's taken us this long to talk about kelly reichert loves a tactile chore she really believes, and I think this is kind of a brilliant thing about her super like realist filmmaking, is that she's like, if you can watch the way people spend their time on screen, that will tell you who they are. It doesn't matter what they say. It's like, how do they spend their time? And that is shown to you through chores. totally fair. Yeah. I think this one, it just happens to be what they are doing with their time is more interesting. I feel like because of that darker tone and sort of that brooding and like slow burn, this one felt like, I don't know, thrilling. (laughs) I think it's so revealing that you have like a lot of 
problems with her other movies and the one that's different you like the most? Because this is the one I like the least. Like the genre constructs create certain inevitabilities about the movie and where it's going that I don't find to be as textually like interesting at all. But there's plenty that's good about it. We got to come back to that film screening scene because it has my favorite fucking match cut in any of these movies, which is so they're like, hey, you're fucking movie is like too centrist and like we need to do something serious like we don't care about this and then the host of the screening starts to say like well i just think it's good that everyone could come out and share ideas tonight and she edits off him in the middle of that comment and cuts to like a person in a cow costume twirling one of those signs and the level of contempt for that kind of like boring say nothing statement really goes throughout this movie. This is the movie where you can feel that underneath all the dignity and the care and the craft that she's probably pretty fucking angry about this. What about when Eisenberg goes in the house where they buy the boat they're going to commit the terrorist act with and the fixation on the golf channel and the fountain in the backyard, the ways that people bogart and recreate nature in their suburban spaces. Like there is a real anger in this movie about that. There is an anger to this movie, uh, which I kind of dig about it. If I'm being honest, I wonder if it isn't like a parable for, you know, the feeling of sadness that Jesse Eisenberg feels after having blown up a dam. That's like how we're supposed to think that the, Bernie bros who have said something like racist or sexist on the internet, like feel immediately after, like they feel very bad about it. Um, Is that not the read? Well, I think that (laughs) I have trouble with him and you know, I've always had trouble with him and this is no exception. Like with Eisenberg, I agree. I get that he's pissed. I get it. But all of his other emotions to me are so like imperceptible that I don't, when it becomes a movie about guilt, like his guilt, and it makes a very curious POV switch where it's like, Josh is our guy. And I'm like, are you sure it wasn't Dakota Fanning who was your POV character? Um, I just yeah, don't. Yeah, I mean, he definitely needs a strip mall dojo if he's going to thrive in a movie like this. This movie um, made me long for the art of self-defense in oh, terms of I mean, Eisen- hard same. I'm not going to lie. Ugh, Eisenberg. He just like, I just struggle with him. I think Dakota Fanning's character is a far more interesting one. And maybe like there's something unpalatable though about the Reichardian universe that like a spoiled rich girl funding terror with her dad's trust fund or whatever is like the heroine of this movie. Um, Cause it's always like the hapless sack, right? Like all these people are kind of like, hapless sacks at the at the center of these things like as charming as michelle williams is in the role i think wendy's like kind of a sack and then i also think like all these stooges on this fucking if they hired meek to take them on this thing like how bright can they be and this one too i feel like it's almost one of her just one of her instincts to go with the person who was like maybe duped into it by here's like late stage capitalism on the left, like funding its own destruction. And here you have the guy with maybe the shady past, but like has the most convincing charisma. And in that way, it almost becomes like a, like a, you know, sort of someone almost like a cult movie. 
I just don't think it's true, though, that he has the most interesting charisma. I think the best character-to-character scene in the movie is Dakota Fanning trying to buy the ammonium nitrate from James LeGros at the feedlot. Um, yeah, she's pretty street savvy. I, I like that part a lot. And I think, of course, this is not a stretch for a Kelly Record movie, but she's great at showing the very subtle ways in which men underestimate women. So, like, they both, for sure. you know, drive out into the woods to meet with Peter Sarsgaard. And at every turn, it feels like Sarsgaard and Eisenberg are turning to Dakota Fanning. And they're like, so, like, just in case you don't understand what we're going to do, we're like, don't fuck this up, rich girl. But, like... Sarsgaard is actively screwing up the plan by telling people his name and not having the right fertilizer, but nobody looks at him. Yeah. Yeah, he didn't fulfill his end of the bargain. And he, yeah, he keeps running into like old prison buddies, yeah. even though he didn't even disclose that he'd had a record. That's a great monologue, too, where she does the how dare you think anything like isn't there when it comes to like background checks. Mm hmm. When she's yeah, like, you which think that's... your files just like in a filing cabinet somewhere. It's like in it... well, okay, this is a giant broad thing, but where this movie lands on the morality or lack thereof of terrorism as a response to, you know, killing the planet, it kind of doesn't matter. This is a boundless system of things that you cannot change. And all of these people are like, you went way too far by accidentally killing this guy. And other people being like, you didn't do anything. Like, one damn? Like, there is no logical response to a death drive system so illogical. For sure. But I do think that the movie maybe, and maybe you are giving it too much credit for being more than a polemic and not being just like a narrative device of... Jesse Eisenberg getting nervous that people are talking about the thing that he did while he's making a sandwich. (laughs) That's true. And that again, ultimately like boils down to like what I don't like about the movie is you stick me with this character, the character I'm least interested in. I'd rather be with Dakota or Sarsgaard. And you just take me down this sort of, you know, faded Hitchcockian rabbit hole of him being like, I'm feeling really guilty. Are you you feeling guiltier than me? Because if you are, like, I'm definitely going to kill you. (laughs) And then him having no hope. I think think that is a genre convention leading the card here. We didn't need the murder scene. Like, I think another Kelly Reichert movie wouldn't have even had the murder scene. It would have just been implied. Sure. Yeah, this one maybe could have been abrupter. Yeah. I mean, this movie, I love how the explosion in this movie, the one that like Michael Bay would lose his shit for, for her, it's just. Yep. (laughs) Like, it's just a little. Yeah. That's they're like in the car with the windows up and they just hear the reverberation of this explosion. And that's cool. We should tip our hat just to the thriller tension where that person is parked by the dam and you're like, are they going to go? back and try to disarm this thing like that's yeah that is great tension absolutely like and i think like wendy and lucy could have had like more of that you know not to make that a thriller it's not an eco thriller like this but i just do think that there's something in the pacing that is intentionally robbing the movie of attention that it could have and like can have such as this movie does with that whole sequence sure I don't really agree with that, but I got you. Um, yeah, I, at least you respect my opinion. I do. All right, night moves. This is my favorite of the three. I'm gonna have to give it a soft good good. That's great. I'm gonna give it a good bad. Uh, we're just gonna switch roles here. 
I think that I did my full Kelly Riker ranking. Can I do that here? You okay with that? Please do it. Okay. I'm going Meeks one. First cow two. First cow, I'll if I can say a little bit more about it, it's just like the f- the tenderness of the friendship between the two people at the at the heart of this western like really carries it. Like there's a moment where you know, one guy saves the other guy's ass and invites him over for a drink. And he's like, well, I got to go out and chop the wood. And the one guy kind of like looks around. John Magaro is the actor who's in that movie Overlord a couple years ago. And it's just I, like, I actually kind of enjoyed that movie, if I'm being honest. I know. It's very grisly and <laughs> fucked up. Um, and just like starts to sweep the guy's cabin, even though he was told to sit there and do nothing. And I was like, that's that's a move that I would that I would do um that's interesting so i'm sorry this is you're going in descending order meek's cutoff is your favorite kelly record yeah and then first cow okay then first then wendy and lucy then certain women so certain women is 2016 and because she got bored of oregon she went to montana to shoot some other northwest (laughs) desolation nice Um, but it's a really a really interesting like triptych of laura dern michelle williams and lily gladstone and just a great movie about like work. A lot of these movies are about work, right? Um, and like what kind of work like men want women to do. There's a great Laura Dern plays like a an attorney, and Jared Harris is like her client. Love Jared Harris. You know Lane Price from Mad Men, son of Richard Harris. I, I I'm familiar. And yeah, just the way like these women are put upon. It's classic Kelly Reichert. It's really good. Five would be Old Joy. Um. Six would be Night Moves and seven would be River of Grass. Well, I look forward to when A24 decides to put this on Amazon for $19.99 (laughs) and or redistributes it in 2021 when there's movie theaters are a thing of the past and uh, everyone's dead. This is a crazy question, but like I really I kind of feel like I am on an island here. Do Do you really think that this will accelerate the like the death of the movie theater like forever do you believe that what we're living through right i now? think everything's pushing us forward to the moment where we're just like living in pods separate from one another i would i would love that that's <laughs> what i'm going for god damn creep <laughs> <laughs> i just want to be able to watch no i don't know man it doesn't look good for movies and well, i think it looks good for content i don't think it looks good for movies or movie theaters that's an issue i think the content is pulling the wagon here i think people looking for stuff to say are being like movies will probably never be the same after this and it's like i don't know if that's true people do enjoy going to movie theaters oh i think the i mean it'll come back but i'm saying can the movie theater industry itself go six months with making no money and i don't have those figures in front of me I mean, I just think it's a, a, a such a fragile industry right now and it's going to change. Like, I think the universal streaming and just like ripping up their agreement with exhibition companies about like the windowing that happens between theatrical distribution and streaming distribution is that's the thing. Like, if anything major shifts in this moment here and things change for the better, it's going to be very hard to like take that away from people. Like it was moments like these when like social security was invented. Right. So I don't know. So I I wonder if movie theaters are going to end up being like, you know, there'll be a few novelty ones left, 
and some people will work out some arrangements and maybe some like weird tax break will allow some other version of something to rise to prevalence. It sounds but like you think I don't know. like AMC or Regal may actually go under. I think you may see the consolidation of one of those. Sure. Okay. What do you think Greg Marcus is going to do? I think he's going to recline his seat all the way back and just like watch movie after movie after movie until this is all over. <laughs> do you think he goes to the United Way and says, I need some of that back? Yeah. I'm so sorry. You know what I hope happens? You know what I hope is the big What's social that? security change? I think vote by mail. Could be very obvious time to do vote by mail. Vote by mail is a good one. You know, all of Oregon has that. I don't see the Rosie Kelly Reichert movie about how voting by mail is a great way to stop voter suppression. I would love a Kelly Reichert movie just about how easy it is to vote in Oregon. That would be great. And you follow around a noble post person as they walk about all day. And Noah has said that Wendy and Lucy would be way better if there was more walking. And I think we could really all be a happy family around that. My idea. favorite parts. <laughs> Night Moves, man. Night Moves got me. Night Moves is playing my song. That's so curious. Well, I'm just glad you found one that you that you really liked because a lot of these speak to me. Um, yeah, these are patient and probably kind of could be frustrating movies, but I think she is uh, a master. Noah, I'm glad that you can quibble and we can have our disagreements. I um, love picking apart people's careers. It's kind of a fun exercise in this weird genre thing that we do. Sure. It's nice to nice to zone in on one person and be like, what are they about? Well, because people are so weird. So like to think that like, you know, there's anything going on specific and like intentionally movie to movie is like kind of a fun puzzle to play with. Well, I like playing with your puzzle as well, Chance. Seeing what movies are going to come back, seeing a movie being like, I know Chance is going to like this, but I'm just not going to know why. <laughs> Did you feel that way about Meeks? I feel that way about Meeks. You're like, chances well, gonna do You just go shit. nuts for like a, a very sleepy Western. Oh, You were like yeah. Buster Scruggs right in the arm. <laughs> you were disappointed that... Uh, Best not to play it too he found any That Tom Waits found anything at the end of that. So you just wanted him to keep digging for <laughs> an hour and a half. Because that's the American way, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's not a real thing I said. But... I think a a good characterization nonetheless. Shall I see you next time here on Be Real when we do something more escapist? We're doing Contagion, no. uh, Outbreak, and either 12 Monkeys or 28 I Days Later. I express to you, dear listener, how many times Noah has tried to get me we to do. We won't do it, guys. There's been plenty of discourse about it already. We're going to do something that makes us both feel good and maybe will make you guys feel good as well. How to Train Your Dragon. The whole I would happily do all three How to Train Your Dragon movies, and then a bonus episode on Desolation of Smaug, how not to train your dragon, <laughs> <laughs> ways in which you may train your dragon, Dragon Heart, How to Train Your Dragon, and uh, Smog. Oh boy, um, I'll talk to you soon, my friend. I'm in if you're in, buddy. Working on a night moves, trying to make some front page driving. Working on a nine moon